What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. I'm your host, Brian Moore, and today I'm interviewing Chip Conley. For those of you who've never heard of Chip, he's the epitome of a renaissance man. He's the founder and former CEO of the Joie de Vivre family of boutique hotel brands, a New York Times bestselling author, Airbnb's strategic advisor in both hospitality and leadership, the founder of the Modern Elder Academy located in El Pescadero, Mexico, and if that wasn't enough, he's learning how to surf. Chip is one of the most accomplished yet humble leaders I've had the opportunity to connect with. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, including topics like what it's like to have your birthday fall on Halloween, choosing to go to high school where Chip knew he was going to be in the minority, having a very engaged, passionate father who wanted nothing more than for Chip to grow up to be a better version of his dad, starting a hotel brand in one of the worst neighborhoods in San Francisco, how Maslow's hierarchy has influenced Chip's leadership and business philosophy, meeting the Airbnb founders and joining the company as both a mentor and an intern, and why today's workforce must embrace the wisdom of our modern elders. Chip's passion for learning is undeniable. In fact, he refers to himself as the curious white boy. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle in for an engaging and very real conversation with Chip Conley. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Built on Purpose podcast. I am incredibly excited to have with me today hotelier, author, social alchemist, disruptor, student, sage, and modern elder, the one and only Chip Conley. Chip, what is up, man? I am wearing way too many name tags. <laughs> based, upon, based upon all those different uh, you know, identities I have. <laughs> well, it's a good thing. I guess you've been constantly reinventing yourself, or should I say continuing to learn more about who you are and, uh, and what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Great to have you. Uh, so I want to start off. Uh, you were born on Halloween, and I am just so curious. Uh, as a guy born on Halloween, as a youngster, was having your birthday on the same day as Halloween an exciting thing, or did it just piss you off that Halloween was robbing you of your special day? I think it meant, it meant that my special day meant that I was just a weird kid. <laughs> I, you know, everybody I knew got dressed up really strangely on my birthday. So, like, what was all that about? Um, no, I, 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 you know, I, I have lots and lots of photos of birthdays with people dressed funny, and I still have those because I have, every five years I do a big birthday somewhere in the world, starting at age thirty, and now I'm fifty-eight, so I've got the sixtieth coming up. Uh, soon, but it's been everywhere from Bali to Marrakesh, and I promise you, we do have a masquerade party one night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, as you as you think back on all of these Halloweens, is there any one particular costume of yours that just really brings back uh, you know the most vivid memories as uh, as the costume itself? Um, God, it's an interesting question. Um. No, not one. I mean, I, you know, 
I did show up at one point in what looked like a birthday suit, um, like nothing, but it wasn't, I actually, it was a, uh, a body double gave me a suit, like showed me how to actually create in essence, what looks like a naked body, but it's not my naked body. And I did show up at a birthday party like that once. And, and the shock factor was enormous until yeah. people realized, Oh, Chip's wearing something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure the looks on people's faces were, were, uh, were pretty priceless. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Well, thanks for indulging me on that. I'm, I'm always curious. There's uh, you know, you always meet folks who have their birthdays coincide with, uh, with a big holiday and, uh, you were the first person I met uh, who was born on Halloween, so I was just super curious about that. Uh, so. You know, I will say one thing that's interesting, Brian, is yeah. that uh, you know I've been in—I live in Mexico, part, uh, you know, more than half the time now—and I was in San Miguel de Allende, which is not too far from Mexico City, a couple of years ago, and going to Day of the Dead, which is actually after Halloween. It's in early November, uh, and doing the Day of the Dead experience in uh, Mexico. That is now that's they they do they do their Halloween or their post Halloween right. I mean it's really quite an experience, and I don't I don't I think probably it's the in the in all of the places in the world there's no place in the world that does that period of the of the year around Halloween Day of the Dead better than than Mexico. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. Well, that sounds like a whole other conversation we could probably have. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really curious and I want to, uh, kind of rewind the clock here and this may be super interesting or it may be absolutely, uh, a non-interesting topic, but I'm curious when you attended Long Beach Polytechnic, you were enrolled in the PACE program, which stood for, or stands mm -hmm. for the program of additional curricular experiences and, uh, having not attended Long Beach Polytechnic or having not been a part mm -hmm. of any kind of a program like that. Is there any impact, I'm curious as you think back on it, that that program had on who you are and the experiences that you pursued after you left Long Beach Polytechnic? Oh my gosh, wow. Well, I appreciate you doing the homework. Um, <laughs> I've rarely been asked that question or anything close to that. Um, so Long Beach Poly is a famous high school. It's actually where Snoop Dogg went to high school, as, as did Cameron Diaz, and it's pretty famous because it's the number one school in the country for uh, being a feeder school for the NBA and the NFL. So it's a big inner city high school, public school. Okay. Um, but it's also the number one feeder school for the UC uh, system in, in the state of California for the, the public uh, state university uh, system. So it's, a, it's an academically relatively strong place. PACE, the program, I was the first uh, graduating class of PACE was meant to be a way, an alternative to busing. So I'm 58. Back in the 1970s, there was a, a strong desire in the U.S. to integrate high schools. And one alternative was to create a busing program. And that really, you know, if you were from that era, you know, back in Boston, as well as in the South, there, were, there was just all kinds of protests around busing yeah. uh, for school. So what Long Beach did was different. It actually took all of the best programs academically in in the school district uh, where there were five high schools and they put them all in the inner city high school. And they said, if you want to do college prep programs, et cetera, um, you can do it. And, and we've got great programs, but they're all in the inner city school. And that, what that was meant to do was to sort of, instead of forcing people to be bused, 
it was giving choice for people, um, often, uh, you know, Caucasians to say, I want to go to school in a neighborhood that is generally non-Caucasian. So I was known as Curious White Boy. Um, that, was my, that, was, that was my nickname. And I'll say that the combination, to answer your question, there are two elements to it. Number one is going to high school in an inner city school where I was a minority as a white guy was a great experience because I think all of us in our life need to live in a place for some extended period of time where we are the other. And when I say the other, I put that in quotes, the other being the, the person who is not in the majority because it helps you to understand and have empathy for what does that mean to be in the minority, whether it's a woman in a boardroom or a person of color in most companies or in, at me at Airbnb, being an old guy uh, or being an LGBTQ person or person disabled, et cetera. So I was the other. So by being a white person in a predominantly non-white school. And then the PACE program was a really intense college prep program that prepared me well for going to Stanford. And um, so, you know, you wouldn't expect an inner city high school to have had five or 10 grads be uh, um, accepted into Stanford, but that's exactly what happened because uh, the program was strong enough that this inner city public high school system allowed for that. So I think it really helped me also get really connected to purpose, my own sense of like, how do I give back? Because I was able to see in an inner city community how so much of society uh, wasn't really giving back to that community. And so um, for me, one of the, my chief things I've done with my foundation is to have it give money as well as project uh, support to inner city youth programs because of my experience growing up there. That's, that's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, as you finished Stanford, uh, and if my research is accurate, you spent a couple and a half years in the real estate business. And, it, and from what I gathered, it sounds like you, you realized pretty quickly that that was not where you were going to spend uh, your career. And after a couple and a half years, you got out of it. Uh, was there anything in particular about the industry or any incident, incidents that you encountered where you know, that sense of purpose you talk about where you just knew that that wasn't where you were going to uh, dedicate your life's work? You know, I, I went directly from Stanford undergrad into Stanford Business School. So I, that the years you're talking about are after my getting an MBA. And I, you know, I felt that the real estate business, generally speaking, the real estate business can be very money driven. It's a, it's a, somewhat of a mercenary business on the, on the brokerage side, on the development side, et cetera. And there are some visionary developers and I really admire them. And the developer I was working for was moderately visionary, but at the same time, it felt like um, there was, there, I didn't have enough creativity. What was really, I think, fueling my decision that I wanted to take my real estate background, but apply it in a more purposeful, but also more creative way was this need to sort of feel I was going to, I don't know, do something that was pioneering that hadn't been done before. And that's when I decided to start Joie de Vivre, um, means joy of life in French. And I decided to create a boutique hotel company in the mid 1980s at a time when um, boutique hotels were just getting off the ground in the U S and um, I loved, and I love the fact that the purpose of the company or the mission of the company is to creating joy of life was also the name of the company. I also like the fact that I could use my real estate background 
but apply it in a more creative way. And also in a way where if I did my job well uh, and, our, and, our, and our team did our, their job well, jobs well, we would make people happy. And that's really what the hotel business is about. So, um, yeah, that's how I got started at age 26. Bought yeah. my first boutique ho- hotel. It was actually a motel and in a bad neighborhood. Yeah, it was and, in the uh, went from there. district, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and at some point, I would assume during the early part of your hotel career, uh, you had... Uh, I'm going to, uh, and please correct me of, of how the interaction occurred, but you had a, a chance meeting or a chance connection with a legendary concert promoter, Bill Graham. And yeah, yeah. I think it was, there's somewhat of the story as Bill had impressed upon you that as musicians are coming in and out of, out of San Francisco, that there's really, there isn't a property that caters yeah. their psychographic. And there was a real opportunity there. I, I, I'd love to talk just a little bit about, your experience with Bill, what you picked up from him, and what kind of a figure he was in your life. So when I was working for the real estate developer uh, that I worked at for for two and a half years out of business school, um, one of the projects that I was assigned to was a potentially joint venture with Bill Graham and his organization uh, to build the Shoreline Amphitheater, which is right down near Google headquarters now, down sure, near Stanford University. Yeah. And so um, the truth is that, that there was a joint venture that didn't, that Bill didn't really need us. And so the question was, you know, how are we supposed to be partners with him? And over time I got to know Bill a little bit. And that's when he said, listen, you know, what you guys really should do in, instead of trying to be our partners on this project is you should try to create a hotel that, you know, accommodates musicians on the road because, and then he told me why. And, and that's what led me to saying, okay, you know, I'm going to go out and create a, a broken, you know, take a, buy a broken down motel in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which is a tough neighborhood, and turn it into a rock and roll hotel called the Phoenix. And that was more than 32 years ago, and um, it became a, a, you know, a surprising success against all odds, and uh, led me to creating 52 boutique hotels over the next 24 years, as my in my role as the founder and CEO of what became the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. And, and yes, as, it all started with Bill Graham. Yeah, that's super cool. And as I understand it, the uh, the original name of the Phoenix uh, almost was Magnolia Court, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you are you you've done your research. Funny, I saw my dad yesterday, my mom and dad yesterday at the Phoenix. In fact, we had a, we had a <laughs> we had, we had an annual owners meeting at the Phoenix yesterday, and they're they're investors and. I laughed at my dad and I said, dad, you wanted to call this place Magnolia court 32 years ago. <laughs> and I said that, and he wanted, and you wanted to make sure we were in all the AAA guides and that our primary customer was going to be families from the Midwest that were coming to San Francisco. I said, dad, this is a motel founded by hookers and pimps in the neighborhood. This is not where they're going to go. And, <laughs> um, and so the Phoenix is what we became because it was rising from its, you know, its own ashes, like mythical bird. Yeah, but yeah. The Magnolia Court, my God, that Magnolia Court sounds like the place where you go to retire. It does. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, you know, for sure, at least a uh, you know a, a very nice assisted living facility or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm, you know, not, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, was it hard to have your dad as you know one of the lead investors in the Phoenix? Was was that did that present challenges yeah. or? Was it pretty easy? 
No, I mean, at first it was very hard because uh, I'm, you know, first of all, I was young and let's start with that. I was way too young to be doing what I was doing. So having my dad's help, he was a small investor, but he would, you know, he was somebody I would bounce ideas off of. But what became clear was there were certain things like my, like traditional business stuff. Yes, he was helpful. Anything that related to concepting of the hotel, what kind of services we were offering, the design of the hotel, the branding of the hotel, all of that. It was just like he was so a fish out of water. And what was problematic was he didn't really get my vision. And, uh, and it was almost to me, the way I felt it was he didn't have confidence in me or my vision or what I was going to be doing. And so that was, it was a tough time. You know, we had a, you know, we had one point almost a wrestling match in the courtyard of the hotel. <laughs> All the staff was watching. It was like, what is going on here? Um, and, um, but over time, yeah, it was, it was hard. And my dad, you know, let's also recognize without this, you know, being a five hour podcast, my history with my dad was my dad was sort of like in my, I was always in his shadow or he was always there right next to me. And that was supportive. And yet it was also a little oppressive. And I'm a Steven junior, which means I'm a chip off the old block, uh, which is part of the reason I have the name chip. And I went to the same high school as my dad and swam and played water polo there just like he did and went to the same college as my dad Stanford and joined a fraternity just like he did. And I was an economics major just like he did. He was, and I went to business school just like he did. And he was my Boy Scout uh, leader and, and an Eagle Scout. And I became an Eagle Scout. And he was my baseball coach. And I was the star pitcher. So bottom line is my dad was ever present in my life. And, and I would say if he had diluted that by 20%, it would have been perfect. Because it was a little too much. And yet, from for those whose fathers was not, were not in their life at all, you know, I would I'd rather have my dad in my life the way he was than not in my life at all. Absolutely. Um, but I would say it would have been probably healthier for both my dad and me if he had been about 20% less active in my life. Um, because what I felt very much was like I was on my dad's path. He wanted me to be a better version of himself. And he even admitted that yesterday when we were talking. He says, that's just all I wanted. Is I wanted you to be a better version of myself. And it's like, well, the different, uh, if, you, if you'd said that you wanted me to be a different version of yourself, that would have been helpful <laughs> because I was a different version. I wasn't just trying to be a better version of you because that would actually have limited my path in so many ways. And as it turns out, I, have, I am a better and different version of my dad, and I'm both. And so it didn't have to be an either or, it could be a both and. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, a little of that insight. That's, that's really, really good stuff. Um, I wanna shift a little bit here, um, and I wanna make a reference. So Jerry Seinfeld, uh, I think, is just an absolutely brilliant comic, and, and I think so much of his brilliance comes from his his just keen awareness of paying attention to just simple daily acts of life and you know finding the humor in the daily things and i and i want to make a mm -hmm. draw a, an analogy because i think in many ways your leadership i think follows a similar path at least what i've seen and read and, mm -hmm. and a few experience i've had where you look at and have looked to you know frameworks like Maslow's hierarchy, and simply mm -hmm. instead of recreating the wheel, you're finding what is a truth. You adopt them and then figure out, all right, how can I leverage this framework as the way to run a business? And you talk about joie de vivre, the joy of life, and to bring a sense of joy 
to the people that you're serving. To me, using Maslow's hierarchy makes so much sense, but I'm curious Mm -hmm. what might seem like so common sense to some is very uncommon to many. So my question is, when did you know or how did you know to simply look for these common sense frameworks and use them as the basis from which to grow everything that I think you've been involved in? You know, I think, first of all, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Um, For me, I'm a voracious learner and reader. So I want to, I'm, I like to constantly learn new things and feed my head. And um, so I'll give give a couple examples using Maslow and then Viktor Frankl. So with Maslow, I was, I took one psychology class in college. I liked it, but I didn't, do anything beyond that i do remember the in that one class that the guy who sort of like had the halo around his head as a psychologist was maslow because most most of the psychologists were focusing on neuroses and deficits maslow was focusing on you know best practices and human behavior and what do we learn from from them created his hierarchy of needs theory so when i was struggling in the dot-com bust and we were the largest hotelier in the san francisco bay area at that point, we had 18 hotels in San Francisco alone. Um, that, in, in just in the city, um, and the city, and everything was just falling apart. Uh, this is about 16, 18 years ago, um, I went to the local bookstore looking for a book, a business book, say, okay, saying, "Okay, I went, I went to business school, so I learned something. Like, <laughs> you know, I need, I need, I need a clue right now." And I, I, after about 10 minutes in the business section, I ended up in the self-help and psychology section. <laughs> and that's because I realized my, my problems were more serious than just business. And that's where I ended up uh, running into one of Maslow's books. And I sat on the floor for two hours reading Maslow, saying, God, I learned this stuff in college, and this is really interesting. And I, I was really applying Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which has self-actualization on the fifth level at the right. top. Um, to myself saying like, how do you know, how can I feel self-actualized in the time when I feel completely deflated right now? And so I bought the book and, and ended up reading it. And then I, I really, one day I just sort of said, well, what if, if companies are full of humans and Maslow's hierarchy is basically a human hierarchy of needs, how could you apply the human hierarchy of needs as for an individual and apply it to a collective like an organization? And that's again, with my, desire to read and learn it's sometimes a matter of reading and learning and then reapplying it in a new way and we took maslow's pyramid five level pyramid turned it into a three level transformation pyramid and then uh, applied that hierarchy of needs principle and sort of paradigm to employees customers and investors who are our three most important stakeholders in our company and ultimately we tripled in size in the dot-com bus which was a big surprise to everybody because everybody said we were a goner. We were the biggest hotel in the Bay area. And, um, Kimpton and Schrager, who are our two biggest, uh, boutique competitors were losing hotels to the banks or, you know, uh, you know, in, in t- turning some hotels, going, taking them into bankruptcy. And instead we, you know, we did really well. And it was partly because of this theory, which ultimately led me writing to writing a book called peak, how great companies get their mojo from Maslow. And then a few years later than that, you know, in the Great Recession, once again, it was a Jewish psychologist who actually came out of the, out of the woodwork on a, on you know on the library shelf where I was like, okay, I'm going to read that man's search for meaning 
by Viktor Frankl, a guy who had been in a concentration camp in World War II, and apply it to myself. And, I, and that's how I sort of got reacquainted with the idea of how do you find meaning in the darkest of times? Uh, and for anybody who's, who's having a difficult time and, and, and lamenting it, you know, read Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning about what it was like to be in a concentration camp. And you will real, realize that you are, you are just in your pity pot <laughs> because your life is probably not bad compared to what he was going through and, and his, the people he, who were, he was in the camp with. Yeah. But his book's a very, very powerful book and led me to writing a book called Emotional Equations. Uh, and led me to sort of start looking at how do, how do we apply emotional intelligence in a in a more fundamental way in leadership in organizations, and that's what I did in my company, and that's ultimately what I used when I went to Airbnb. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's a perfect segue. Um, you know, I'd love to hear how did you uh, originally connect with the Airbnb guys, uh, gender neutral, with the team there, and you know clearly this sense of value from all of your experience and your, your building of emotional intelligence. And as you talk about that exchange of EQ for DQ, and I'll let you explain it, you know, how'd you meet, how'd you meet the team? Um, how did you guys decide that this was a good idea? And, and how did you find your way through the maze initially? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was funny. I, I had chosen, when I read Man's Search for Meaning, I read it at a time uh, when I was struggling and it made me really realize I needed to sell my company, which is a hard thing. You know, when you start a company at age 26, you think you're going to run it for 50 or 60 years. And 24 years into it, you're like, you know what? I'm over this. I need to move on. It was a hard thing to do, but I, I did. And a couple of years later, uh, as I was in a new era, um, uh, there's a great, a great quote from Robert De Niro in the movie, The Intern. He says, Musicians don't retire; they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. Mm. And I think that really it was appropriate for me. I was 52. I knew there was still a lot of music inside of me, but um, I didn't know who to share it with. And that was when six years ago, Brian Chesky, uh, co-founder of Airbnb and CEO, approached me and said, "I'd love to have you be my intern." My intern. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, "My inter, my uh, in-house mentor, and help us become a hospitality company because we're a." small tech company that's growing fast, but we have no hospitality or travel industry people in the company. And so I spent a little bit of time there and then dove quite deeply into helping run the company um, with, the, with those three and a senior leadership team that I helped to, to work with. Um, and it was a full-time job. And I, it, what it taught me quickly was I was as much, yes, I was the mentor. I was older than everybody. I was twice the age of the average person uh, in the company, but I was the intern as much as I was the mentor. Yes, I had a lot of what wisdom around hospitality and leadership and strategy. I was head of strategy for the company as well. But I didn't know a damn thing about technology. Didn't know a lot about millennial travel habits. Didn't know much about the Silicon Valley tech world of investors. And so often I was learning as much as I was teaching. And so it led, ultimately that coined the term in the company, people started calling me the modern elder. And the modern elder is different than a traditional elder in the sense that the modern elder is as much a curious learner as they are a wise teacher. And it's that combination of curiosity and wisdom that makes them relevant. And the elder of the past was all about, rele was all about reverence. 
you gave reverence to your elders, but no one does that anymore uh, in Western society. So it's about having relevance and relevance allows you to use your wisdom, but apply it to modern day problems. And so that's what I did. Um, And the EQ for DQ that you mentioned is I traded my emotional intelligence for their digital intelligence. Um, And the truth is that power is moving 10 years younger in, in most companies and we're all going to live 10 years older. And so we've all of a sudden created a 20-year irrelevancy gap if power is moving younger and we're going to live older. And that's what I've tried to do in, in terms of both speeches I've been giving, book I wrote, modern, which is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, and then the Modern Elder Academy, which I created in Mexico. So I, I want to hang on this for a minute and uh, specifically – talk about, I'm not sure if if there's a better word for it, so feel free to jump in, you know, ageism and and what is happening Mm -hmm. within the workforce. You know, right now, I think we are in the most fiercely competitive labor market, uh, certainly of the last 20 years, if not longer. And, you know, with great technology and and platforms out there like LinkedIn that have certainly proliferated the, the, the resume and you can find people and learn about what they're up to, at the same time, you know, you've got photos on there and people are making judgment calls based upon uh, college graduation dates or what their photo looks like mm-hmm. or the number of years of experience. And, you know, whether we want to believe it or not, people are discriminating. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what have you learned or what did you learn from the Airbnb experience and what are you learning from the Modern Elder Academy as you are working with individuals that have had and, and gain such amazing wisdom and mm-hmm. want to continue to share it, but maybe are running up against these invisible brick walls that maybe aren't so invisible. Yep. Yep. Um, great question. Uh, and yes, ageism is the last form of socially acceptable um, bias in our society. Now the others still exist, uh, but they're less socially acceptable. Ageism we laugh about, we joke about, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Senior moments. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And the truth is, let's be honest, that there is certain things as we age don't get better with time, and other things get, do get better. What we've tended to do as a society is have a societal narrative that gets very fixated on what doesn't get better, without focusing on what does. Let me just use a specific example so that doesn't sound too abstract. Um, as we get older, our recall, so memory, and our quickness with our mind isn't as good as it was say 25 years earlier, fine. But what a lot of people don't know is there are a series of studies that have shown in the last five to seven years that as you get older, you do, you're more adept at doing what I call the left brain, right brain tango, which means you actually have all wheel drive. You're better at being able to move from logical to artistic and back and forth and do that sort of left brain, right brain, which, why why is that valuable? It allows you to be more holistic and synthetic. Synthetic meaning sort of like being able to synthesize things um, in your thinking. It allows you to get the gist of something faster. It allows you to actually tap into your intuition and use it in in a more fundamental way. So what does that mean for a company? Well, if somebody, if you have somebody who's older, who's got a great ability to get the gist of something, there's someone who actually doesn't get caught in the weeds. And that is exactly my role. I mean, all of this I've learned only since joining Airbnb six years ago. 
But it's exactly true of what happened to me. I joined. It was like, oh my God, we have 30 strategic initiatives. Why don't we just have four? Let's like go and do an offsite and let's get clear about what the four are, what's essential, what's important. Let's get the, like, like it's, you know, so that, that's the kind of thing. And that's part of the reason why Brian said, I want you to be not just in charge of hospitality and business development and learning and development, but you're in charge of strategy now too. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the point is that um, we have a narrative in society that pretty much says as people get older, they're better, the best times are behind them. And in some ways that's true. If you're talking about the, the playing field of your body, that may be true. If you're talking about the playing field of how much money you make a year, salary-wise, you cap out at, at your t- top out at age 45 in the te- tech industry and age 50 to 52 in the general population. So yes, in, at 55 or later, you're like probably making less salary, but but your emotional intelligence gets better with time. Your ability to synthesize and have wisdom can get better with time, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. What's my answer to you know the ageism of society? Number one is to, is to go out and give lots of speeches, write books like this one, and and try to help people see the value in intergenerational collaboration. I'm not suggesting we go back to the era where we revere our elders. No, that's you know that's not coming back. But I am saying saying that um, diversity of all kinds is valuable in the workplace, and we are very familiar with diversity of gender and race and sexual orientation, but there's a lot less familiarity with gender of age and cognitive diversity, which sometimes has nothing to do with age, uh, could be about neurodiversity, but often age is an element of cognitive diversity in the sense that you get somebody at the table who's gonna look at things a little differently, and that means you have less likelihood for groupthink. Finally, I'll say one last thing on this subject, which is I was talking with a well-known executive recruiter not long ago, and she said to me something that was really interesting. She said, you're right. If, if you just get caught up in the robots, the artificial intelligence, looking at your, at your resume, you're in trouble because people just perceive you as older, and that could be a problem. So you have to use soft uh, contacts, people, sometimes people who know people, to get in, in the door or to actually go to a networking event or things like that. But she says the key thing to know is this, is when you do have that face-to-face time, which will happen occasionally, the key thing to know is that when you are curious and passionately engaged, your wrinkles start to evaporate. And what people notice is not your face and its wrinkles. What they notice is your energy. And if you've got that kind of passionate energy that people want to sort of feel a part of and it becomes a bit magnetic, you can overcome people sort of looking at you and judging you based upon your age. And um, that's you know probably true of any bias we out there, but the truth is I think it's more true for frankly for something with age in terms of those two qualities, curiosity and passionate engagement. So, as you think about the team you've built at the Modern Elder Academy and having folks on board like a resident shaman and a yoga and meditation teacher and massage therapy, um, are the Folks who are enrolling in the academy, are they embracing with open arms immediately? Is there some resistance given that some of these things, like I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that some of the folks coming to the academy, have they, 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 they know what a shaman is in principle or in theory, but having mm-hmm. worked with one is probably a new experience for some of these folks. Yeah, that, 
that's, not option. That, that piece is, that's optional. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. That, that's no one. No one has to work with the shaman. So that that's an optional, uh, you know, added benefit. Got it. Got it. Got it. So really meeting people where they're at and allowing them to pursue yeah. what they believe is is going to create the most impact for them. Yeah. 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 Got it. So I think. Um, you know, the, first of all, the key thing that people need to know is this, is that um, they are not alone. And for, first of all, one of the biggest surprises of the Academy has been the following, that people are showing up at a much younger age than I thought. So um, almost 20% of the people who apply are people under 45. Hmm. So originally we said it was, it was a 45 to 65 year age range. But what we found is we've had people as young as 30 and people as old as 74 hmm. in the program. But, but we've had um, uh, between 5 and 10% of, our, app, of our, our actual grads at this point have been in their 30s. So people start feeling a little irrelevant in their 30s or have a desire to sort of somehow start to cultivate their wisdom. The average age is about 52. Um, so, uh, you know, these are not people who are elderly. They're people who are at a stage where they may be an elder. Elder is a relative term in the sense that it means that you are, um, you are older than the people you, that surround you. So if you're a 22 year old surrounded by 35, I mean, if you're a 35 year old surrounded by 22 year olds, which is how it is in many tech companies, um, you know, that you could be an elder. Yeah. The key that we do at the Academy is we help people reframe their mindset. Um, both on a personal level in terms of what they have to offer the world, and then also from the perspective of the societal narrative on aging. The thing that's really interesting, Brian, is that there's a ton of evidence, and a lot's been made of this, about the U-curve of happiness. There's even a book that we came out last year called The Happiness Curve that's quite good. Um, and uh, the, the happiness curve shows the following. Across all societies except Russia, Russia's the only one that's a little bit of an aberration, but across all societies in, on, the, on the planet, um, there is a U-curve of happiness where people start seeing a decline in their happiness that goes from about age 28, 25, 28, till about age 45 to 50. And then it bottoms out around 45 to 50. And then it starts getting better. And people in their 50s are happier than their 40s. People in their 60s are happier than their 50s. And people in their 70s are happier than their 60s. There's a bunch of reasons for this. But it's not actually woven into our societal narrative on aging. The societal narrative on aging is you hit midlife, you have a crisis, you don't love your life as it is then, you actually go out and find a, you know, have an affair and buy a sport car or, you know, whatever you do. And then you get through the crisis, but on the other side of midlife is aging, which is awful. It's full of decrepitude and disease. And that's what people know. And when we actually start introducing some, some research, scientific information that helps people to understand a new narrative that they could, and a new mindset that they could actually adopt, it, it helps them to see, I have some wisdom that I've learned along the way that it can be applicable in a whole new industry that might be a better habitat for, for me. Because I am in the, you know, I'm a, I'm a, computer engineer and I spent 20 years doing it, but now I'm in my forties and I feel, you know, over the hill, but I've learned team collaboration skills. And I got to tell you, those companies are full of really smart, 
technology people, but they're full of teams too. So maybe I start shifting my skill set to being a team leader more than the, the individual contributor who's a rock star as an engineer. So for the tech entrepreneurs, since, you know, uh, so much of this modern elder philosophy, you know, came from the experience you had with Airbnb, is there any advice that you would want to deliver to tech entrepreneurs who are brilliant in the products or services that they're creating, um, the technology that they're building, but have yet to, you know, have that realization that there's this massive, massive well or reservoir of elder talent, modern elder talent that they can tap into Mm -hmm. to help them with building teams, collaboration, focusing on, you know, whittling down 30 key strategic initiatives to four. How do you help them realize they need this when they are so smart and maybe just haven't had those laps around the track to realize it yet? Well, the thing I'll say to them that is the same thing to, to anybody is do not hire people who are just like you. I mean, you, your natural tendency is to do that because right. you like them, you're socially adept with them, yep. um, and they agree with you a lot of the time. But, but, but actually go beyond that because I understand that on the age side of things that um, there may be somebody who has some experience. The thing I would also say is don't hire somebody who's just stuck in the past. If, if you're hiring somebody because they actually just want to tell you the way they always would have done it, or they're, they don't have a curiosity and, a, and an appetite for learning, that's not a modern elder. That's just sort of an older person who's trying to sort of live on the fumes of their past. And I think, so I think what's really important is to look at people, especially, let's say you're disrupting, you're a technologist disrupting an industry like healthcare. And, and you know, healthcare deserves to be disrupted because nobody likes the industry and, and all that's true. But that means maybe you should go out and hire a really curious modern elder from the industry who's got a, a big Rolodex. And I know you, know, I know you, you don't know what that means. <laughs> that, just means that means they know a lot of people. Um, and it, they also so they have a lot of know-who, but they also have a lot of know-how about how the industry works. That person, while they are wedded to that. If they're wedded to the past and they don't really believe in your technology and what you're doing, then don't hire them. I believed in Brian and in Airbnb as a disruptor in the lodging industry, not to actually take over the hotels. The good news is I didn't, you know, I'm still, I still own hotels. So I'm not, I sold the management company, but I still own the real estate of hotels. So I didn't think that Airbnb was going to come in and basically ruin the hotel industry. So, um, you know, it was easy for me to be part of a disruptor that I knew was going to still keep the, in, the, the industry intact in general, yep. but that its new way of doing things would actually help maybe improve innovation in the industry. So yeah. that's what you want to look for. And how do you find those people? They may be friends of your parents. They may be people who went to, you, you may have an alma mater in, in, uh, in common. You might need to actually go out and literally look for that person. If you've got a venture capitalist or an investor in you might sort of say to them, you know what, I want to hire somebody as our head of strategy, but I actually want them to frankly be 10 to 15 years older than me. Let's look for that. And not only exclusively, if you, because if you, if you look for anybody exclusively based upon a demographic, you, you know, you're, that's a, a, a very dangerous path to be going on. But you can sort of say that's, that you want someone with the following experiences as well. And so 
long story short is that this is part of what a lot of younger people don't think about as a possibility, partly because they feel like they don't want to hire their parent yeah. or their preacher. And a lot of times the, that older person is a parent or a preacher and they're, they're lecturing most of the time. Yep. Yep. That's fantastic advice. So I, I, I saved what I hope to be the, the best question for last. Sure. Um, are you ready? Yeah. Entiendo que estás aprendiendo español. ¿Cómo te va? <laughs> mi español es muy malo, uh, mi amigo. Um, but so uh, <laughs> say it to me again. But actually, give it to me in English. Um, <laughs> I, I'll give it to you in English. And this is about the extent of my Spanish. So uh, yeah, I can't it's take about listen, it. It sounded like it was about listening potentially or about it, hearing something. You are, you're, you're super close. I, uh, the, the question is, I understand you are learning Spanish. How's it going? Yes. Oh, gosh. Yes. I, <laughs> I just answered. I just answered you. <laughs> you know what? I'm learning Spanish and surfing in my late 50s. And I'm enjoying it. But I mean, I've, I've only had six, six lessons so far on Spanish. And, you know, but my Spanish is still better than my surfing. <laughs> so, oh, man. Uh, clearly, oh. I need to work on both. Hey, you know Thanks what? Thanks so much. Uh, you know, it's my pleasure that uh, what, what a. What an amazing, amazing conversation. Uh, my curious white boy friend, Chip, thank you so much for, yep, yep. for joining you, us. Uh, and I could chat with you for hours. I really appreciate it, man. Perfect. Take good care and good luck. Thank you. All right. Thanks. See ya. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing my interview with Chip. If you're interested in a transcribed version of the show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, feel free to drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening. 